We are solving mysteries in post-World War III San Francisco with Tex Murphy, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 38 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Right off the bat, just wanted to thank everyone for uh, understanding the show was uh, was supposed to come out last week, but unfortunately, I had a little bit of a family situation. Uh, We had to... uh, unfortunately attend a funeral uh out of town last weekend so obviously i didn't have time to uh, to get the show out so uh now that that's all over with um we're here and uh, the show is out and or at least the show is recording it'll come out later and uh and and we're good to go aside from that things have been uh fairly busy as usual but uh you know fall is in the air it's cooling down i actually have the uh, furnace repairman coming at some point probably in the middle of me recording this show uh, because my furnace is making a funny knocking noise when, uh, the one time I turned it on and, uh, I figured I should probably, uh, get that looked at before it gets cold enough that, uh, that it really matters. But anyways, enough about my furnace, uh, woes. Let's get on with the news. Cause my Lord, we have a lot to talk about this week. So first in the news, uh, a few days back on October 8th, is that right? October 8th? Yeah. October 8th. No, October 3rd, a few days back on October 3rd. A company called 31X uh, released an iOS version of Transport Tycoon. Now, obviously, this is a remake of the 1994 Chris Sawyer game of the same name. We haven't uh, talked about Transport Tycoon specifically yet, but we did talk about Chris Sawyer's other game, or one of his other games, uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon, way back when. Uh, so Transport Tycoon is currently available for $6.99 on the App Store, uh, I haven't picked it up myself just yet, but I probably will in the near future. However, if anyone out there has played it, feel free to drop me a quick review, as always, to podcast at umbcast.com. Could be email, could be audio, anything you want, I would greatly appreciate it. Next, as a follow-up to uh, to the last show on Thief, uh, the upcoming new game in the Thief series, simply entitled, again, not Thief 4, but Thief, uh, has a release date. Uh, I came across uh, I came across the posting on Steam, and it is now available for pre-order and will unlock on February 25th, 2014. So it's really great. We're going to get the next game in the Thief franchise, and uh, hopefully it will live up to, uh, to the games that I talked about last time. Now we have a little bit more SimCity news. So uh, Patrick Buckner, I believe his name is, uh, who's the general manager of the Maxis Emeryville studio, put out a State of SimCity post. Uh, In this post, he announced a couple of things. Firstly, uh, they talked about how there's been seven, you know, major uh, patches or content updates, and uh, they'll continue to release these free content updates alongside an upcoming expansion called Cities of Tomorrow. Secondly, he tells us of the results of some kind of research and development explorations that uh, the development team has been doing. Uh, they are seriously looking at the possibility of a true offline mode for the game. 
They are also figuring out ways to introduce user-generated content and mods without kind of breaking the game and breaking, you know, balance and, and things like that. On a sadder note, though, the team did look into expanding maximum city size, and unlike the previous two points, this one's a non-starter. They did all kinds of different things, and apparently uh, by scaling up city size, the simulation performance gets so degraded to the point where the game basically becomes unplayable. They said they did all kinds of different things. They tried to tweak the simulation, tried to scale things, turn them off, turn them on, and whatever, but uh, no matter what they did, performance just wasn't good. So uh, for the foreseeable future, at the very least, cities will remain at their current sizes. So uh, in in that post, uh, we have some some good news and some not-so-good news. Also this week, I think this news dropped yesterday, uh, we have some missed related news or some potentially missed related news. So Rand Miller, who uh, who I talked about extensively back in the missed episode, uh, has gotten back together with uh, with Cyan Worlds and uh, they are working on what they refer to as a quote unquote larger project. Uh, no additional information is really available on this as of yet, but uh, we can conclude that something missed related might be in the work. So I'm going to link to a Polygon article on this in, uh, in the show notes. And that Polygon article links to a, uh, a post in the Cyan Worlds forums where they're doing some kind of weird game where during the, during the game, the, uh, the staff is kind of slowly releasing some information. But um, I will, of course, keep you guys in the loop as, uh, as more information comes out. Finally, in the news, uh, some really, really exciting stuff. This is hot off the presses, beep, 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 all that stuff. Uh, It just broke today via Twitter. It appears that in celebration of Gabriel Knight's 20th anniversary, Jane Jensen and Activision finally got together, uh, and they're going to remake the original Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. Well, Activision won't really be involved in any of the making. Basically, Jane Jensen and her company, uh, Pinkerton Road were able to uh, come to an agreement on the rights uh, with regard to the the IP rights of Gabriel Knight and uh, has gotten them from Activision. Uh, I covered the Gabriel Knight series quite a while back. I think it was actually, if I go and look, almost exactly a year ago, around September 30th, I believe, was uh, of 2012 was when I covered Gabriel Knight. Uh, to me, it's one of the most well-crafted adventures ever made. I'm really, really happy that this is happening. Uh, the official site can be found at www.gabrielknight20th, that's gabrielknight20th.com. There's some, uh, I guess, some preliminary screenshots of, uh, of some well-known locations from, uh, from Gabriel Knight's Sins of the Fathers, like the St. George Bookshop, uh, you know, the Bayou, and uh, a couple of other places like that. And uh, they've really high-resed them up. That's what they're going to do. They're going to HDify the whole game, um, you know, redo all the models. It's going to be done in the Unity engine. Uh, the only unfortunate thing that I was able to see with regard to this uh, thus far is that, unfortunately, they will not be able to use uh, the original voice acting from the game because the original uh, sound resources, basically, from there are are gone. And there's some... Some stories flying around that uh, that I do tend to believe that you know when Sierra was uh, kind of dismantled, a whole bunch of stuff was chucked out, including these uh, the original files, the original source code for for a lot of stuff. And uh, you know they tried apparently to uh, to extract the sound files from the original from the original game, the GOG version, 
whatever like that. And uh, it just didn't work out. So they're going to re-record all the voice acting with different actors. Cause unfortunately I think people like uh, Tim Curry, Mark Hamill, Leia Romini, Michael Dorn, all the people that uh, were in the original game might be a touch expensive these days to get and getting everyone together and all that kind of thing will, uh, will be a challenge. But uh, you know, all that aside, very excited. New Gabriel Knight. Uh, we don't have a release date yet. Obviously, this was just announced today. I will for sure follow this closely and keep you guys in the loop. That is that for the news. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, before we get rolling into things here, I got a couple of emails relating to uh, last week's show, or the last show wasn't last week, it was like three weeks ago, crazy, but uh, anyways, so first email from my good friend Elima, she writes, hello Joe and fellow blockers, I just wanted to write a little follow-up email after the last show about the Thief series, thank you so much for that great episode, it allowed me to pick up on things I missed like the stellar sound design and thus confirm the impression I had last time, that the Thief games are hallmarks of their genre. Maybe they're just not for me. I'm sorry to say I don't have much to contribute on this week's game. I don't think I've ever played it. I might have seen Under a Killing Moon in passing at my exchange friend's house, but I was too busy getting him hooked on wacky wheels to actually give the game a fair shake. Definitely looking forward to this week's show and what you have to say on the Tex Murphy games. Thanks a bunch for the podcast, Emily slash Elima. P.S. I cringed when you read my email last time. Alt-Shift is actually the Azerty to QWERTY maneuver, not Alt-Tab, which is, as most people know, for task switching. Well, don't worry about that, Alima. Everyone, especially me, makes those little uh, those little flubs uh, from time to time. It's no big deal. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I I had the same kind of thoughts on on the Thief series. Is that uh, it does look like you have there are a set of games that you have to give some time to just because they're they're really quite different from uh, from other uh, other first person type games that you would play. So as always, thank you very much for your email. I love reading them, and uh, you always have some great things to say. Next email from uh, from another regular uh, Andreas. He writes, "Hi Joe." I've been on holiday for two weeks and didn't keep up with the internet. Now that I've heard the Thief episode, let's get down to business. Thief 1 and 2 are some of my favorite games of all time. As you might guess, I did play them when they first came out. In fact, I begged my mom for an advance copy on my allowance when Thief 2 was released. I always like to play them on the highest difficulty setting where you're never allowed to kill anybody. Always have to collect a large amount of loot and make your escape from the scene. Not being allowed to kill makes the game so much more awesome. When I wasn't playing properly, I used to play the first level over and over while making up objectives for myself. I'd often mess around and try to storm the front and fight my way through the guards. There was also one female servant in that level. I made up a lot of objectives around her, like abducting her from the manor and throwing her down a well or something. Yeah, I had a way with the ladies. Also, the Thief games seem to have some kind of a curse on them for me. Every single one of them, I have played until the later levels and then one way or the other lost my save game before being able to finish them. I did replay the first one three years ago, so I finally got my redemption and finished it. Speaking of which, I never knew about the development hell it seems to have gone through, nor did I know about the texture packs and source ports. To make it playable, I had to press Ctrl-Alt-Delete and assign the game process to only use a single CPU core. For some reason, the dark engine tends to freeze on multi-core systems. Other than that, it ran just fine. 
I didn't really like Deadly Shadows as much. It felt like an unfinished game, which it kind of was. They released it prematurely, loaded with bugs, and then stacked the entire team, or then sacked the entire team, sorry, making it very hard to write any patches. Also, I thought the AI was a bit silly. You could steal a friendly NPC's staff, walk around with it in front of them, throw it in their face, and they'd still mutter, where's my staff? I must have dropped it. I'm surprised about the complaints about the controls, though. What actually was bothering you? As far as I know, the game controls like any FPS, be it retro or current. You mentioned something about three buttons to move forward. What is this? Ma- what is that madness? I press W to move forward and hold shift to creep. Did you ever finish the first game, by the way? When you do, you get a blooper reel, a version of the first level that is filled with several of the bugs they encountered during development and platters next to them that explain what's going on. I wish more games would do that stuff. Long email is long. That's what you get for talking about one of my all-time favorites, and I haven't even gotten started about my favorite levels, your pal, Andreas. Thanks, Andreas. And, uh, you know, for the controls... I noticed, I, I felt like, and maybe this is a difference in the uh, in the Steam collection versions or something, because I think, I'm not sure if the, they're the original, original versions, but uh, basically I think the default control setup for me was W was to walk forward, and then S was to creep forward, and then Q and E let you turn, and A and D made you start for something it was just a, there there was some weird default controls set up in in the version that i played and that might not be the case i think alima also uh mentioned something about continuously fooling around and remapping the controls so it might really honestly it might just be uh, a byproduct of the steam versions i don't know so uh, i don't know if anyone else uh, played them or played the Steam versions, or played the original, uh, let me know if I'm crazy or not, but I definitely had to mess around with the controls because they definitely didn't really seem to map to uh, to the standard WASD standard controls, at least in the in the regular way. So thank you so much, Andreas. Thank you so much, Alima. Great emails, as always. Keep sending them in. Everyone else, too. Love, love, love hearing from you guys. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. Okay, so on to the main topic for the show, the Tex Murphy series. Tex Murphy is a series of five games developed and published by Access Software. The first game in the series, entitled Mean Streets, was released 24 years ago in the venerable year of 1989. So as we usually do, let's discuss the genre. This is obviously one we know quite well. Tex Murphy is a series of adventure games. Uh, we've seen quite a few of these thus far. King's Quest, Sam and Max, Space Quest, Full Throttle, blah 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 uh, Since we've done the genre quite a few times now, I've come up with some good analogies for it. Adventure games are the video game equivalent of a movie or a TV show or a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Uh, as the player, you generally assume the role of a single protagonist. Sometimes there's more than one, but usually it's one. Uh, and you're issued a quest of some type very early on in the game. Uh, the primary mission will generally span the entire game. Uh, you proceed through gathering information and clues to further the story along. This is done by interacting with your environment, interacting with NPCs, and of course, solving puzzles. Puzzles usually involve things like getting past locked or otherwise blocked doors, providing information or items to NPCs in exchange for information or services, or almost anything else you can think of. Any fetch quest or puzzle type thing or logic thing, there will be an adventure game 
puzzle for it. Now, depending on the game, puzzles, like I said, can range from finding combining inventory items, logic, pure mathematics, wordplay, and even range into aspects of pure science, such as physics, chemistry, biology, all kinds of stuff, depending on how, uh, how deep the game itself is. Anyways, I've talked about adventures a lot, so feel free to jump back to previous shows if you'd like to hear more now onto the games themselves. So like I've done in the past, uh, this this is a fairly long series, uh, and I'm going to focus a little bit on each game with uh, most of the dev stuff kind of stacked on the, uh, on the first game, and I guess maybe on the third game in this series too, but we'll get there. So this is relevant because each game in this series is quite a bit different from the other. So let's begin at the beginning with 1989's Mean Streets. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Story time. So to begin, I guess we should do a little background on the Tex Murphy universe. You are Tex Murphy, a hard-bitten and somewhat cliched private investigator. A Tex lives and works in San Francisco. Now, this is not the San Francisco we know and love where all of our tech pundits and uh, cool internet companies live and where you can get really, really good coffee. Uh, it is 2033. World War III has ended and the world is bathed in radiation. The world is rife with genetically mutated humans. Those who don't have the money to live inside the newly built, well-protected cities or lack a basic immunity to, uh, to the radiation are disfigured in a variety of ways. Some are disfigured almost unnoticeably. Some are mutated somewhat humorously and others quite grotesquely. Almost all mutants are considered second-class citizens and live in kind of the rundown or completely ruined outskirts of the new fancy protected cities. Now Tex is naturally immune to the radiation and hence is known as a norm. However, he's down on his luck enough that the best place he can afford office space is is on the second floor of the Ritz Hotel on Chandler Avenue in old San Francisco amongst the mutants and the destitute. The Ritz is in the same shape as Tex, run down, beat up, and dirty. Chandler Avenue is surrounded by radiation warning signs and rubble. Tex himself is a likable enough guy. He's good-natured, and he's generally friendly. He loves old Bogart and Sam Spade film noirs, and... Uh, kind of models his uh, his private investigation agency after them. He's incredibly observant, has a sharp wit, and a hilarious inner monologue, which we, the player, are constantly privy to. Sadly, he also has a bit of a predilection to bourbon, and uh, he can be unfortunately clumsy at times. So with that background info in mind, let's get on to Mean Streets. As most film noir stories begin, Tex is in his office, minding his business, when in walks a woman. And what a woman. She's beautiful, she's young, she must be trouble. Her name is Sylvia Linsky. Her father, Dr. Carl Linsky, recently died. He was seen falling from the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, the police conducted their investigation and concluded it was a suicide. Sylvia doesn't believe it for a second. She suspects murder. Prior to his death, Carl was working on some type of secret project that he refused to talk to Sylvia about. This is very, very odd, as uh, he's usually very open about his work, and uh, on top of that, his death occurred mere days later. So, with $10,000 up front and a few leads, both from Sylvia, uh, Tex takes the case. 
He soon ends up investigating much more than a simple murder. He uncovers the truth about the secret project Linsky and a group of other scientists were working on and has to stop it from coming to completion. So that's kind of the beginning of the story and kind of a little tiny preview of the rest of it in a nutshell. Let's get on to the gameplay of Mean Streets. The gameplay is definitely interesting to describe. Like Thief, the last time we talked, Mean Streets kind of started out as one thing and ended up something completely different. We'll get into more of that in a bit of the dev story, but here's the short version. The goal of Mean Streets is a simple one. Get to the end of the story, basically like any adventure game. This begins with the search for the truth about Karolinski's death. Did he jump or was he murdered? So how do we get to the bottom of this? Well, Tex is a detective, so let's detect. We have all of Tex's skills at our disposal, but first things first, we have to get somewhere. As you start the game, uh, we see Tex walking over to his very Blade Runner-esque flying car. Sitting in the car is where we actually start the game. Now, getting from place to place in Mean Streets is definitely a different kind of uh, experience than we're used to in a regular adventure game. There is a somewhat rudimentary flight sim here, and in fact, when the game was originally conceived, this was to be the main portion of it. Texas car can do everything you'd think a flying car can do. It can hover up and down and maneuver like a plane, that is, it can pitch and roll and yaw and all that stuff. Uh, this is also... In this car is, is where you do most of your business. In the car, you can contact Vanessa, who's your assistant, and have her perform some background checks and research for you. You can also contact Lee, who's your confidential informant. He can get you kind of this, some underground info from uh, the other side of the law. This is also the only place where you can inspect your inventory and do housekeeping stuff like load or save your game. So we're in the car, and we have a few leads provided to us by Sylvia. Some of these leads are people, others are organizations, and some are simply uh, locations. They all have four-digit codes associated to them, which uh, are called NCs, or navigation codes. All these things are actually located in, uh, in the game manual. There's a little section where, you know, there's a little bit of background info, and you have your listing of, uh, of leads as provided by Sylvia. So these navigation codes are basically coordinates, or addresses, if you will, of notable locations. By entering these codes into your navigation computer, you can fly from where you are to where you need to be. So to begin, I decided to go to Dr. Linsky's office. The manual, as I said, where the leads are listed, states the office is at navcode NC4663, which sounds like a flight number for some reason. <laughs> NC4663 to San Francisco, boarding at gate blah. Anyways, whatever. Uh, entering 4663 into the nav computer locks in your destination. You can now switch back to the cockpit view and either fly there by yourself by lining up your destination marker on your compass or by hitting A to engage the autopilot. I opted for autopilot since the flying controls are not incredibly intuitive, let's say. Once your car lands at a location's landing pad, you can exit. Exiting will lead to a variety of events occurring depending on where you are and when you are in the game. In the case of Linsky's office, we're greeted with a description of the place. There's no one here, and there's nothing to do or search or whatever, so you read the description, which takes up the full screen, and uh, we get right back into the car. In other cases, uh, say when we go visit the coroner, we're presented with, again, a description of the location, and then we enter what's known as conversation mode. 
uh, a window with kind of a shoulders up, I guess you can call it bust view of uh, the NPC in question is shown and uh, we're giving the following interaction options. We can either question, bribe, threaten, or exit. Bribe and threaten can be used when interviewees aren't being very cooperative, but uh, your standard option is question. Selecting this allows you to enter any text you'd like in the form of a topic. So if you want to know about Carl Linsky, you select question and you type in Carl Linsky. You also had better spell everything correctly or the question E will not know who or what it is you're talking about. This this can sometimes be a little bit frustrating. For example, Linsky is spelled L-I-N-S-K-Y, which for some reason my brain had trouble remembering and uh, I kept misspelling it and they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. I can't help you there. I'm like, no, this is the guy. You got to tell me. And then I'd look and realize I spelled it wrong and uh, retype it and then it would work. So... By asking questions and typing them in properly, uh, you will start to get, potentially start to get answers. And uh, you need to pay attention when people are talking to you as uh, there's really no hint or topic tracking system here. When a new piece of information is made available, you need to write it down. Yes, manually, on paper. Names, locations, especially navigation codes, organizations, events, all these things are relevant and you don't really know unless you've played through the game before, you have some type of walkthrough or something, what is actually important and what isn't. So this is the first way you gather clues and information relating to the case. The other way is searching. So when you get to a location that is searchable, such as Linsky's apartment, for example, the game switches into a more traditional third-person room-based adventure-type layout interface. Along the bottom of the screen are action verbs, such as look, get, open, on, off, and taste. The next third of the screen shows a a listing of any nearby interactable objects. The top two thirds of the screen contains a graphical representation of the room and text inside of it. You walk text around using the arrow keys until a group of items appears in the uh, selection list. You then inspect them by drilling down into the items individual menu trees. So say you see a desk Looking at it will give you a description and then switch the menu to show maybe a blotter that's sitting on top of the desk and a drawer that's, you know, in the desk. You can move the blotter and maybe find something underneath it. You can open the drawer for the same. Some menus can go quite a few levels deep. You know, there might be a desk that has a drawer and inside the drawer there's a locked box and then you need to find a key and you use the key and then inside the locked box there might be a jar and then you have to open the jar and then there's something inside. So it really can go like four or five levels down into this into this menu. So by combining your search skills and your interview skills, you'll eventually gain access to clues to get to the end of the story. And that isn't all though. Occasionally Tex will have to fight. This is where his handy dandy gun comes in. Sometimes when you exit your car, you'll have to kind of fight your way to a destination. Your goal when fighting is always the same. So the fighting is done from a, a side scrolling kind of view and your goal is to get from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen without getting shot enough times to get killed. You can take quite a few hits, maybe like six or eight, maybe even 10, and uh, you can and you must shoot back to take out the bad guys. They'll keep on coming in endless waves until you get across the screen. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, so gameplay is a little all over the place in, uh, in Mean Streets. Let's talk tech focus. Now, as much as, uh, as I said, the gameplay is a little interesting, Mean Streets is a very interesting game from a technological standpoint. From a system requirements point of view, there isn't really much here. As far as I can tell, Mean Streets really only required an IBM XT or compatible 512K, that's kilobytes, of RAM, and any of CGA, EGA, VGA, MCGA, or Hercules graphics. When I have a bit more time, we'll have to get into detail about all these different graphics modes, especially MCGA versus VGA, since honestly, a lot of people think they're the same and they're similar, but they're not really exactly the same thing. So system requirements aside, the first thing that is really unique about Mean Streets is that it was one of the earliest games to employ the full VGA resolution of 320 by 200, along with the full VGA color palette of 256 colors. This is 1989 we're talking about here. So, you know, this was a bit of a gamble at the time, as honestly, most machines of the day didn't even come equipped with VGA cards in them. It's kind of like putting out a movie in 4K today. You know, it's like maybe two or three people out of every, I don't know, 5,000 or 10,000 have a 4K screen. Um, you know, most people would be playing Mean Streets in 16 colors, some four colors, or even two color monochrome. So 256 colors was like they were really aiming for the sky here. Uh, the team at Access took a chance that VGA would catch on, and luckily they were right, and they ended up being kind of on the vanguard of this 256 color revolution. Looking at the graphics now, they're definitely rudimentary. They're rudimentary. Yes, the graphics are rudimentary. But back in 1989, the digitized actors and, and the richly colored environments were really light years ahead of anything put out by LucasArts or Sierra, who were still doing art in 16 colors. It was nice 16 color art, but you know the, that, that color depth of 256 just was not there. The second cool technology implemented in Mean Streets was Access's in-house developed real sound system. Now, this wasn't the first game to use the system. However, it may have been only maybe the third. The music you heard at the beginning of this section was not MIDI. At the time, that music would have actually come directly out of a PC speaker. Real Sound was created by Steve Witzel, an engineer at Access Software back in the late 80s and the time all this stuff was happening. Real Sound allowed PCM audio to play over a PC speaker. Now, PCM means pulse code modulation, and uh, it's a method that is used to store analog sounds, such as music, in a digital format. Sound files were encoded down to a very low bitrate, so this isn't like variable bitrate, you know, 320 kilobit per second, like MP3s or anything like that. This is low bitrate, low sampling rate, all that stuff. And then it would use what's called a, uh, a PWM or pulse width modulation driver to, uh, to play the, these audio files. So if you've been listening for a while, you may recall... I explained how the PC speaker worked in, in a past show. The PC speaker emits what is known as a sawtooth wave. That is, by default, it can only emit two tones at two different voltages, zero volts for a low tone and five volts for a high tone. Well, the pulse width modulation driver, PWM, which is what I'm going to keep calling it because saying pulse width modulation over and over again is hurting me, uh, basically tricks the speaker into emitting additional tones by very quickly alternating pulses of varying lengths at zero and five volts. It's kind of complicated and you really have to understand how analog audio works. And honestly, I really don't. 
maybe you know my Rick Moyer or my buddy Alex who creates electronic music can explain it a little bit better because you know they know how synthesizers work and how these voltages work and how the different waves work and and all that stuff I'm frankly not very good at physics suffice it to say that well Many other games were bleeping and blooping and playing simple single-tone music from the PC speaker like we've heard in, you know, older Sierra games and stuff like that. Uh, Real sound was generating dynamic and complex music along with some digitized speech and sound effects, albeit, you know, at a very low fidelity. Despite being quickly eclipsed by MIDI, FM synthesis, and all that stuff, Real sound really took the PC speaker as far as it was capable of going. One very cool aspect of this game's sound also was a page out of the manual. The physical speaker inside of PCs, you know, the PC speaker itself, was very poor and very low powered. It was only about a two inch speaker. So to get the best audio fidelity out of your real sound game, you could connect your computer to a set of powered speakers. At the time, this was most likely a component stereo system or a boom box, if you will. Uh, a page in the manual outlined how you can make your own audio out cable. Basically, you take a mono RCA cable, strip one end, and attach one alligator clip to the ground wire and another to the actual audio cable along with a 4.7 microfarad capacitor. You attach the clip with the capacitor to your PC speaker, the other to the computer's case for grounding. You then plug the RCA cable into your stereo's line in, and you're good to go. Of course, plugging things in wrong could blow something up, but uh, we're prepared to take that risk for epic real sound beats. Now, the manual doesn't explicitly state who composed the music. It only says real sound by Steve Witzel. So I can only assume that he also created the music for the game in addition to creating the real sound system. If anyone knows differently, please let me know. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, so let's start the dev story at the first game. Tex Murphy was envisioned by Chris Jones, one of the two founding members of Access Software. So in 1988, the company had just released a huge vector-based futuristic flight sim named Echelon. However, this flight sim wasn't just run and gun. The goal of the game was to explore and solve puzzles, eventually piecing together a series of alien maps, which lead to the location of the alien secret base like Mean Streets would be, it was a fairly ambitious and unique project. That said, shortly after the game came out, Jones, who in addition to being a game designer also doubled as Access Software CFO, wanted to build another flight sim-based adventure based on the Echelon codebase. Unless you said based a whole lot of times, but we'll just go with it. Now, in his spare time, He'd been writing a film noir-style detective story inspired by Sam Spade and old Bogart films. The story was set in post-apocalyptic San Francisco, and the main character's name was, of course, Tex Murphy. As we've discussed, Tex is a down-on-his-luck PI living in the slums of the old city. Not only had Jones written up this world and story, but he and some of his co-workers at Access had uh, actually made an amateur film about it already. So Jones would take lead as the game's head writer, and his partner and co-founder Bruce Carver both directed and produced the project. They decided to hang the Tex Murphy story and world onto their flight sim engine to make a game that was somewhat similar to Echelon, where you'd have kind of a flight sim that wasn't all run and gun. You had to solve puzzles and do 
all kinds of stuff in that. But their goal this time was even more ambitious in that they really wanted to create, I guess you could say, the greatest and most complete game ever. It would have a huge open world where you could fly around freely. It would have full adventure aspects, including complex interactions with characters and environments. Not only that, but there'd also be action sequences involving fighting. And of course, all of this would be rendered in 256 color VGA graphics using digitized actors and their advanced sound system. So the important thing here is digitized actors. So the team would use actual people that they'd film and, and digitize into down into portraits. And uh, of course, Chris Jones himself was portrayed as Tex Murphy. This isn't incredibly relevant in this first game as these portraits, you know, they don't really move very much. They might have one animation loop that'll kind of repeat and, uh, and they don't actually speak. But this, as we will soon see, is not always the case. So as usually happens, when you decide to make a game that does everything, some aspects of it do get kind of sidelined. And much of the time, it isn't the ones that you thought would get sidelined that actually do get sidelined. So as the game developed, the adventure portion, you know, interviewing people, searching for clues, all that stuff, took on a larger and larger role while the open world flight sim aspect got smaller and smaller. With the addition of the navigation codes and the autopilot, the flight aspect of the game really became very redundant. It was left in as a travel mechanism and to create additional immersion in the world, but frankly, it just was totally unnecessary. Uh, the action sequences were also somewhat rudimentary, but again, added to the world and the ambiance and all that, so they were added in. Mean Streets released in 1989 to very positive reviews. If you had a machine that could handle it, it looked and sounded pretty damn good. Mean Streets raised the bar for adventure gaming in the 286 era. This, of course, led development to begin on the second game in the series, Martian Memorandum. In the sequel, we find ourselves in 2039, six years after the events of Mean Streets. Tex is hired by business mogul Marshall Alexander, founder of the huge Terraform Corporation. It appears Marshall's daughter is missing, and he isn't used to having things taken away from him. He's a very powerful man. As in the last game, Tex interviews people close to the disappearance, including the company's lawyer, Alexander's wife, his daughter's roommate, and more. Eventually, Tex finds out the disappearance is linked to an item in Alexander's possession known as the Oracle Stone. This leads him onto Mars and onto more danger. So, if there's one thing that the dev team noticed about the first game, it's that they tried to do too much. Where Mean Streets was an experimental, multi-genre hybrid, Martian Memorandum was designed as a more traditional point-and-click adventure game. 
Gone is the flight sim travel aspect, which really ended up being a time sink more than anything. Gone were the rudimentary action sequences. We just really had a pure point-and-click adventure here. A simple travel interface replaced the flight portion. If you exited an area or clicked the travel button, a list box would appear with a selection of possible destinations. Also, in more quality of life improvements, instead of writing down names of people and places, interrogation topics now appear in a list so that you don't need to worry about missing something or misspelling something or anything like that. Martian Memorandum also added dialogue trees to the game. Asking someone the right series of questions would result in them helping you. Saying the wrong thing generally ended the conversation pretty quickly. Martian Memorandum continues to use the real sound system and brings it to the next level, with many of the characters being partially voiced. While the sound samples are definitely low quality and quite muddy, it's still quite a feat. The interface was mouse-based, with an action bar along the bottom of the screen containing kind of the standard adventure-style action buttons. The game released in 1991, again to reasonable reviews. Players liked the more focused gameplay, and uh, while the interface was certainly improved, it was still somewhat clunky. Tex Murphy was a reasonably popular series by this point, by 1991, but it wasn't really hitting the fans as hard as it could. As the development of Martian Memorandum was coming to a close, a new designer came on board at Access. His name was Aaron Connors. Connors had been designing board games since he was 10 years old, using anything he can find. This love of creating interactive gaming experiences led him to create and host murder mystery parties in his college years. These parties taught him how to tell an interactive story. Jones heard about these interactive mysteries, checked one out, and immediately offered Connors a job. In 1991, immediately after the release of Martian Memorandum, work on the next Tex game, Under a Killing Moon, began. No pestilence has ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and horror of blood. In the moonlight, New San Francisco sparkles like a chunk of cubic zirconium an island of hollow beauty surrounded by a red sea of radiation. Five million souls drowning in gamma rays. Some lucky people have a natural immunity to genetic mutation caused by the radiation. I'm one of them. Most of them live in the new city, but I don't. I live among the unlucky souls, the mutants and the destitute and the wreckage of old San Francisco. My name's Tex Murphy. I'm a private detective, or at least I used to be. Since my marriage hit the rocks, I haven't done much of anything. 
I went out tonight for the first time in a week, but all I ended up doing was spending the last of my money on a bottle of cheap bourbon. Now it's past midnight, and I'm staring out of the window of my office on the second floor of the Ritz Hotel. Just like me, the Ritz used to be something. Now it's just another grimy building in a rundown part of town. And I'm almost out of bourbon. So, the story of the game, penned by Connors, is this. As we can hear by that short intro, Tex has truly hit bottom. His wife, Sylvia, who is in fact the same Sylvia Linsky from Mean Streets, has left him. He's out of work, he's low on cash, and he's living in the mutant slums of San Francisco. Tex realizes that he has to get his act together. He sets out to hunt for work. He finds it quickly once he discovers that the pawn shop across the street from his apartment has been robbed. Tex quickly solves the case, feels his luck has begun to change a little bit, and then a mysterious woman, calling herself Countess Reiner, having heard good things about Tex, hires him to find her missing statuette. Everything seems great at first, and the Countess is promising to pay Tex more money than he's seen in his whole life. However, everything quickly goes downhill when Tex finds himself unwittingly involved in the affairs of a dangerous cult. So, where the first game in the series was daring and experimental, the second, while still pushing things forward, was definitely safer. Connors and Jones again tried to get back to the roots of things. They wanted to make the best game ever with a big, open, and dynamic world, just like in Mean Streets. They looked at games that were out there. Wolfenstein 3D had set the bar for 3D gaming, but it really only had acceptably good graphics. Seventh Guest, which is a game I still need to cover, had incredibly good graphics, but you had very little freedom to move around. The Under a Killing Moon team wanted the middle ground. As high-definition graphics as they could get, while still offering total freedom of movement. This, of course, led to the development of a completely new 3D engine. The interface was fully mouse-driven. The game had two modes. Interactive mode, where the view was fixed and you could perform actions on objects, and movement mode, where you use the mouse to move around the 3D space and position yourself in a, such a manner as to interact with things. I mean, the, the, the movement wasn't fluid by any means, but it certainly did work. So say, like in our first example in the first game, you wanted to search a desk. You'd come into a room by a very similar travel system as to the second game. You'd enter movement mode and make your way behind the desk. You'd then switch to interactive mode and start doing your regular adventure type actions. You could open the drawer and you could look inside. You might have to move because you actually do need to look into the drawer. So you might have to get closer and look down. Uh, you could take note of things. You could grab items, add them to your inventory. From there, you could combine items in, again, a standard adventure-style puzzle or uh, give them to people and all that other stuff. The dialogue trees in Mean Street, not sorry, not Mean Streets, in Under a Killing Moon, started to do something interesting, though. Instead of writing out Tex's full statement, they'd have a short, sometimes funny, description of kind of the concept of what Tex would say, such as, order a manly drink. Or they'd simply define an attitude, such as lovesick puppy. This wasn't common practice at the time, and frankly really isn't still today. Though it is something that Bioware does pretty well these days in, uh, in games like, I guess the first place I saw it from Bioware was maybe Knights of the Old Republic, and uh, definitely in games like Mass Effect. So in addition to the 3D environment, there was another very big evolutionary change to the game. Whereas the previous games used digitized actors in small windows, under a Killing Moon 
was done in full motion video. When you spoke to someone or an action scene took place, you saw real actors playing their parts on fully digitized sets. Most of the actors that were used in previous games came back to reprise their roles, including the starring one. Chris Jones himself played Tex, and despite not being a professional actor, does a half-decent job. He, he defines Tex, and, which I guess makes sense because he created him. He gives Tex a very wry, self-deprecating sense of humor, which doesn't really come across in previous games. In Mean Streets, Tex was really kind of an enigma. You don't really know him very well because you're kind of looking at the world through his eyes and you're kind of role-playing him. And in the second game, it came through a little more, but in this game, he's definitely a little bit goofy, a little bit snarky, and uh, a little bit clumsy. There were a few bigger names in uh, Under a Killing Moon, including the voice of James Earl Jones, who played the big P.I. in the sky, which is sort of a godlike character that would scold Tex whenever he did something dumb and died. In addition, Lois Lane herself, Margot Kidder, played the role of the bartender. The FMV sequences were directed by David F. Brown, whose only IMDb credit is this game. Like many of the FMV games of this time, the direction and cinematography is okay. It's interesting. I mean, around the mid-90s, full motion video sort of took off as the new way to tell a high-quality story. Since players were basically watching interactive movies, they began to expect film industry quality work out of the game industry. But there were a few problems with this. Firstly, game companies didn't have the brain trust to do this kind of work very well. The focus tended to be on technology and the actual creative filmmaking was left to people who didn't really know how to do it. Why is that? Well, because most game companies employ programmers. They don't employ film directors and cinematographers and things like that. Well, this game is one of the better ones. You quickly see that the production quality and acting talent sometimes is not quite there. FMV was also phenomenally expensive when compared to more traditional game development. You know, in a traditional game, you have designers and writers and animators and things like that, but all these people don't really take up much space. They have a desk, they have a computer, and, and that's that. For FMV, companies needed studio space, they needed actors, they needed motion capture rigs, they needed cameras, they needed green screens, they needed props. It was a big world that most game companies didn't have the first clue about. And on top of all that stuff, they still needed the animators and the designers and the programmers. Because of all this FMV footage, the game shipped on four CD-ROM discs. So despite, you know, these issues and the problems of FMV and, and all that stuff, the game impressed fans and reviewers alike with its well-written, if not necessarily always well-filmed, story and groundbreaking at the time FMV technology. Under a Killing Moon released on Halloween in 1994 and again sold quite well. Under a Killing Moon, of course, led to the Pandora Directive in 1996. 
I like your office. Oh, yes, the ambiance is very authentic. Reminds me of those, uh, you know, those old detective stories that I used to watch when I was a kid. I'm sure that at any moment, Sam Spade is going to come marching through that door, but then who needs Sam Spade when I've got Tex Murphy standing in front of me? Did you always want to be a private eye? As far back as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Would you have a seat, Mr. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, while all the other kids were logged on to Sesame Street Interactive, I was reading Hammett and Chandler. It must be quite an exciting life. Oh, it's got its moments. Don't get me wrong, it's not like the movies. It sure as hell doesn't pay very well. But it suits me. So what can I do for you, Mr. Fitzpatrick? Well, I'm trying to find an old acquaintance of mine, Thomas Malloy, Dr. Thomas Malloy. The last official address for him that I have is the Ritz Hotel. Now, do you happen to know him? Can't say that I do. That's very important that I find him. You know, let me give you a little background. For many years, I was a research scientist and I worked alongside Dr. Malloy. But about 20 years ago, maybe, I guess something like that, our paths diverged and I lost touch with him, and he with me. And then very recently, I saw a photograph of him in a local newspaper. Now, it's a strange thing how time is such a natural equalizer. It makes us appreciate the faces from one's past. At any rate, the older gentleman in that photograph is Dr. Malloy. And I contacted the newspaper to find out where the photograph had been taken. It was at the San Francisco Technical University. Well, I hiked right out there, got to the campus, and decided to look the man up and surprise him. Even with that photograph, no one recognized him. No one knew his name. But then I received a strange phone call by a young woman named Sandra. The man I knew as Thomas Malloy, she knew as Tyson Matthews. She seemed quite uncomfortable talking on the vid phone, so I suggested we meet. She never showed up for that appointment. You never heard from her again? You know, it's strange. But this simple, whimsical wish of mine to get together with my old friend has materialized into, I don't know, I feel a sense of impending doom. I fear for the young woman, and I fear for my friend, Dr. Malloy. It sounds interesting. I think I can look into this for you. Thank you. Now, you'll have to refresh my memory. How much, how much is your fee? How does it work? I charge $500 a day. Of course. Plus expenses. Naturally. Tex is hired by Gordon Fitzpatrick to find his friend, Thomas Malloy. Tex quickly discovers that Fitzpatrick is not the only one who's looking for Malloy and finds himself dragged into a dangerous situation. With few people he can trust, Tex must try to unravel the mystery surrounding Malloy, and along the way, he learns the devastating truth behind the greatest government conspiracy of all time. 
Now, the Pandora Directive used the same engine as Under a Killing Moon and maintained almost all of the gameplay elements. It did add the concept of branching narratives, leading to seven possible endings, three of which are positive and four of which are negative. These endings occur depending on your actions throughout the game. Text can usually choose to do a positive thing or a negative thing. All positive, if you do everything positive, you get the best ending, whereas if you do things all negative, you get kind of the worst ending. Again, if I think about it, this this really does remind me of the kind of Paragon slash Renegade aspects of Bioware games. Uh, you know, it really does make me wonder if one of uh, one of Bioware's main designers worked on these games earlier in uh, in their career. Be something interesting to uh, to delve into a little bit more. So, with even more content than its predecessor, the Pandora Directive shipped on six CD-ROM discs instead of just four. So, the game came out in. July of 1996, uh, where it won uh, Adventure Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World. So again, did uh, did quite well. I think much better than uh, than previous games had thus far. This then leads us two more years down the line to Tex Murphy Overseer. The main story of Overseer is told as a series of flashbacks. Tex is out on a date with his girlfriend Chelsea Bando whom we met in Under a Killing Moon. She feels Tex isn't capable of committing to a relationship and confronts him about how he still wears his wedding ring from his now ex-wife, Sylvia Linsky. This leads to Tex to uh, tell her the story of how he and Sylvia met, which, coincidentally, is the story of the first game in the series, Mean Streets. So Overseer is effectively a remake of that game in kind of the current Tex Murphy paradigm. So originally, for the uh, the fifth game in the series, Access had a plan to develop a completely new game, a proper sequel to its most popular release, The Pandora Directive, uh, and it was to be called Trance. However, Trance was put on hold as Access entered a short-term contract with Intel to create a game bundle to, uh, to kind of ship off with new CPUs. Since they were under a tight time frame, they decided to suspend the new game and remake an existing story. And the only reason for this was scheduling. The game engine was totally rebuilt to run natively on Windows 95 and 98, and uh, it was also the first text game to be designed natively for DVD-ROM. So the game package came in either a form of five CDs or a single DVD. Of course, there was no disc swapping with the DVD version, plus it also contained higher quality video due to uh, the increased storage capacity. Of course, as things tend to happen in business uh, before the game was complete, Intel dropped the package deal they had with Access. This was not good news as the game was almost done. And uh, despite the fact that the game was never intended to stand alone and was always kind of simply being built as basically a tech demo, the Access team built it out and expanded the interactive portions into a full retail game. So Overseer came out in 1998 and reviewed fairly well though it lacked the branching narrative of the Pandora Directive, and uh, it also ended in a cliffhanger that was supposed to lead into the next full game, Trance, which, uh, which had immediately been put back on the schedule. Not only that, but Trance was expanded into the first of a trilogy of new games. Unfortunately, as tends to happen in the industry, Microsoft bought Access in 1999, renamed them to the Salt Lake Game Studio, and added them to the collective known as Microsoft Game Studios. As a result of this merge and the decline of sales of the tech series and the decline of adventure gaming as a whole, the sequels were put on permanent hold. 
Jones and Connors made many, many attempts to restart development, but they were always blocked by Microsoft management. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, the Tex Murphy series ended in a cliffhanger, and like many TV shows on Fox, we have no resolution. It was canceled before its time. Well, that isn't necessarily the case. In 2004, Microsoft sold the remains of Access to Take-Two Interactive, who renamed it to IndieBuilt. In 2005, IndieBuilt closed down. In 2008, Jones and Connors were able to reacquire the rights to the series and immediately founded Big Finish Games. So they had the rights, they had a company, and Project Fedora, the next game in the Tex Murphy series, was announced in 2009. Now, of course, they needed funding. They came to the conclusion in 2009 that they could fund the game via sales of casual games. This may have been a good idea, but by 2012, they hadn't written one line of code for the next Tex Murphy game. So things did not look good. Then, in walked Tim Schafer and his Kickstarter success with Double Fine Adventure. Seeing this, they immediately announced a campaign themselves and set a goal for four of $450,000 to be supplemented by $300,000 they had already raised on their own. By the end of the Kickstarter, they'd raked in almost $600,000 on top of that original $300,000, so they were, uh, they were sitting pretty for, uh, for money. Later, Project Fedora was renamed the Tesla Effect, and there will be a new FMV Tex Murphy game in the vein of Pandora Directive, complete with branching story. Preview trailers are looking good, despite the still somewhat campy look of even the modern FMV scenes. It's definitely a throwback to an earlier time. It runs on the popular Unity engine, and uh, the game is slated to come out sometime in the first quarter of 2014. So Tex isn't gone, and uh, you know we'll finally see what happens after the cliffhanger of Overseer. So, where can we get Tex Murphy today? Well, the first thing Big Finish Games did when they got the rights to Tex Murphy was to work with GOG.com to uh, get all the Tex games running on modern systems and available via their site. So, you can get the first two games in a pack for $5.99 and the other three games individually for $9.99 each. They run great with no issues at all from GOG. I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So before we get to the verdict, I've got one more email from Thomas, and he writes, Hello, Joe. I'm listening to your podcast since your guest appearance on Elder Geek Show, and uh, after listening to all your shows available so far, I'm a huge fan of your work. Since Pandora Directive holds a special place in my memories, I decided to write to you when you announced that your next show will be about Tex Murphy series. It was 96 or 97 when my dad bought that game for himself. 
It was a weird time for my country, Poland, as we were in an awkward transition stage from communism to democracy. Products from, quote-unquote, the West were usually very expensive, and uh, a new PC game would cost 10 to 20% of uh, your average salary. Pirated movies, games, and music would be sold on street corners without any disturbance from authorities. Uh, Concepts of copyrights were uh, non-existent in people's mentalities back then. But this game was original, shipped from the UK, I think. When my dad brought it home, it was still unpacked in shining blue cardboard box with six discs put in one big case. It was the first time I saw anything like it. As I was around 9 or 10 at the time, and uh, I knew it wasn't a game for me, but I knew I have to play it. So I would boot up the game before or after school, every time my dad was not home, and try to play it and progress as, uh, as much as possible. My English was not that good at the time. Basic would be the appropriate word, and since the only way to progress is to talk, gather information, and conclude your next step, I was having a lot of trouble. I would look up words in the dictionary and abuse the hint system by uh, using up all my points, rewriting them on a piece of paper, translating, and restarting the game to get to the same point, so I would have more points for further hints. It was really hard, as it took me weeks to get even to the cabin in the woods, but very, very rewarding, as I had to struggle not only with the game itself, but with understanding what it expects me to do. By the time my dad discovered I was playing it, after I showed him all my, no- all my notes on pieces of paper and on the sides of dictionary pages, he decided that I put so much effort into that that he'd let me continue and even offered to help with translation. I remember how beautiful, mysterious, and scary the game was for me. Dialogues with real fully voiced actors and the first person perspective made everything so realistic. Although I had little idea about the plot of the game, I was excited to push forward every little bit Also, I remember how scared I was when I stumbled onto the video of Alien Autopsy in the cabin. I never managed to complete the game back then as, while the story progressed, the amount of new characters and locations made my method of trial and error too complicated, and the hints became more and more hard to understand as my understanding of the plot was marginal. After a while, I gave up, but the game left so many great memories that I have absolutely no doubt why I'm a fan of cyberpunk and film noir to this day. After a few years, I even tried to reinstall the game, but I had trouble running it properly on Windows XP. But then came that glorious moment when I learned I can get a working copy from GOG and that there are other titles in the series. So I got the game, played it, and I must say it's everything and more compared to what I remember. I love it. This time around, I had a lot less trouble with it. I could finally learn everything about the plot of the game and discovered how much great humor it has to offer. I realize that I'm not very objective, but I think that the game is still a lot of fun. Of course, you know that new Tex Murphy is coming soon. I just can't wait to play it. I'm looking forward to the next episode as I'm really interested in the dev story and your opinion of the game. Thanks again for all the hard work and great podcasts. God bless you, Thomas. Well, thank you, Thomas. And that is, that is truly an amazing story. Um, you know, I talk about this every, I don't know if I've talked about this every once in a while, but, uh, you know, recently at, at my current job, I started working with, uh, with a lot of guys who are, you know, they're they're from Israel and they're from Russia and and they're from former Soviet republics and stuff. And they, some of them do have uh, do have stories like this where, you know, we were they were able to get their hands on maybe illegal copies of games or things like that. And you know, they didn't understand English very well, and it it helped them. And they found ways to 
to translate things and to get other people to translate things and, and to figure things out. And it's just, it, it's this really cool thing that like, I, this isn't something that I guess if, if you're not an immigrant or you're not in, you don't live in an English speaking country and you have access to kind of media from English speaking countries that, you know, being that I was born in Canada and I always kind of lived in a place where I spoke the language and I didn't have these crazy adjustments to, you know, a different way of life and a different language and everything like that. I don't have that experience, but I hear it over and over that, you know, these games are how I learned English. These games are how I got through a tough time. These games, you know, it's, it's just really great. And it's, it's really inspiring. And it's one of the reasons that, that I do this show because these games are important. They're not just like dumb games with crappy graphics and, you know, chip tunesy music. They do mean things to people. And honestly, they, they help people through, through bad times necessary or through challenging times or to learn a new language. And, you know, they, they, they can be a very positive influence on people. And I think that is great. So thank you so much, Thomas. I, I hope to keep hearing from you and uh, great, great memory. As I just said, you are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, so does Tex Murphy hold up today? Well, I will say this. From Under a Killing Moon on, yes, these games are very well done. Once you get used to the somewhat finicky movement controls, these games tell an awesome story, rife with puzzles and great investigative interactions, all told in a great film noir style and great humor. At times, some of the slapstick is a bit on the nose, like at one point, Tex, in Under a Killing Moon, Tex smacks into a wall and a very Homer Simpson-esque dough sound comes out of his mouth. But, uh, you know, these moments are really few and far between. If you really want to go back and play the first two games, they do eventually grow on you. However, despite the fact that even Mean Streets was running VGA graphics, the first two games do look very dated. The sprites aren't very detailed and they aren't very well drawn. The controls are very kludgy, especially in Mean Streets. What I'd recommend is this. If you want to play the first two games, play Martian Memorandum. The story is pretty cool. If you want to try Mean Streets, you may as well just play through Overseer, since there are a few plot differences, but basically you get the whole story there without having to deal with the very irritating flying segments and having to manually type in everything. So, if you like adventures, if you like detective stories, and if you don't mind some occasionally cheesy full motion video that does have, you know, its own charm and, again, does grow on you, give Tex Murphy a go. These are, these are great games, and frankly, there aren't very many games out that are like them. So before we end, I have chosen a winner for the Thief giveaway that I announced in the last show. I got quite a few entries on this one. It's uh, it's the most entries I've gotten yet, and I randomly chose Zoomer88. Congratulations. I hope you enjoy sneaking around with Garrett. I've already uh, dropped him an email with the with the Steam game, and, uh, and he accepted it and, and all that, so everything seems to have gone well with that. So I will definitely keep doing this in the future. I'll likely announce another giveaway on the next show. Maybe we'll do something a little bit newer this time, something that maybe is outside of the purview of the show, but hey, it's fun to give away games. So that is that for another show. As always, thanks to everyone who contributed emails and voicemails and all that stuff. Uh, I had a great time with this one as I do every episode. It makes me 
very, very happy to put these out and, uh, and that you guys listen to them. So another little announcement. Uh, I'm pretty sure I mentioned my fledgling YouTube, YouTube channel uh, in the last show. Well, I've been adding to it over the past few weeks. I've put up some play sessions of me going through the beginnings of the first three Tex Murphy games, along with some of my witty banter. So if you want to see some Tex Murphy, in addition to just hearing me talk about it here, you can check it out at youtube.com slash umbcast. That is my YouTube channel. So next time, we're hitting the God game of God games, the 1989 Bullfrog game, Populous. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, feel like I'm doing a lot of Molyneux games, but uh, you know this one's important. And for some reason, we're back in 1989 again. But uh, yeah, so if you played Populous, if you have anything to say about Populous, please feel free to drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com. I love your emails. I, can, I can't say it enough because that is the truth. Thank you to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. You can find me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can check the show out on Steam. You can check the show out on YouTube. Just search on those sites for Upper Memory Block Podcast. They'll pop right up to the top. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me a review. I love them. Five stars if you if you believe that I deserve them. That is that. Thanks so much to everyone for listening, and I will see you next time for Populous here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.